How you doing? Good. It's good to see you. Good to see you. You know, it's uh, mornings like this, times like this, where I am reminded of that old song. It's an old song, but from the rising of the sun to its go to going down, I will give praise to the name of Jesus. It is very hard to worry and worship at the same time. And so if you're ever worried, you're ever going through anything, my initial advice is stop, drop, just start worshiping, and you'll find that it's awesome. You cannot worship and worry at the same time. Amen? Amen. I don't know why I said that other than I just said that. So <laughs> we are in our Easter series, Easter BC. We're looking at the story of the cross and the story of the resurrection through a man who saw it hundreds of years before it even happened. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, one of the most accurate prophets of the, well, they are all accurate, but I mean, one of the most detailed in his description of the resurrection, of the crucifixion, of the life of Jesus. Uh, Isaiah is really one of the ones that it's almost spooky uh, how close he got it. And, and of course, we know he wrote it before Jesus lived because we have copies that predate Jesus. So Easter BC is really an authentic look at uh, one of the great hallmark Old Testament prophets and how he described the life of Jesus and particularly the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We'll get to the resurrection next week, right? Resurrection Sunday. Woohoo! Come on, you got to be a little more excited about that. I mean, Resurrection Sunday. <laughs> um, but today, we're still on the, on, the, on the crucifixion side. In fact, with the title, Wrongful Conviction, you probably know where we're going with that. So uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and break it out and open it up to Isaiah 53. And uh, if you can't read your Bible anymore because you're like me, your eyesight's fading, that's why we bought these big screens. It will be up there. But I don't, I don't know about you, but I like making little notes in my Bible. So if you got it, you can still do that. Uh, anyway, Heavenly Father, as we open up the word, I pray you'd open up our hearts to receive that one, two, maybe a handful of things that, God, you're speaking to us, teaching us today, Lord, that is not only going to be life to our spirit, but food to our soul. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start by saying, saying this. Fifteen years. Fifteen long years. Fifteen years. Fifteen years is a long time to spend in prison when you're innocent. Especially for a crime you didn't commit. Floyd Bledsoe spent 15 years of his life in prison for a murder he did not commit. His brother committed it. But while being investigated, the police released his brother, who was the real criminal, and wrongfully convicted Floyd because of a long and grueling interrogation process that the prosecutors eventually used against him. Now, since his release, Bledsoe has been a fierce advocate for mandatory recording of all police interrogations and other reforms in the state of Kansas. Now, another man, a little earlier than him, by the name of Jonathan Fleming, spent 24 years in prison 
24 years, nine more than Floyd, 24 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. And what exonerated him? The police had a hotel receipt in their possession in a box of evidence that absolutely proved that Fleming did not commit the murder. Now, the police weren't out to get him. It, it was an honest mistake. It was an honest oversight. And unfortunately, in our human system of justice, it's not going to be perfect. And oversights are going to happen. But this oversight cost Jonathan Fleming 24 years of his life. Of all the things that could happen to me in this life, this is one of the ones I actually am anxious about from time to time. Because I look like a criminal. No, I don't. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Somebody like, yeah, Tom looks like a bank robber, doesn't he? No. You know, but I, I often, you know, I, I have this, it, this movie in my mind where the cops are knocking at the door and they open up, are you Tom Nackey? Yes, I am. Handcuff him, you know? And, and, and I go through this whole process and some jury finds me guilty and I never did it. And now I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison or however long they decide for a crime I never committed. I can't think of a more worse injustice. I can't think of a better prescription for bitterness and unforgiveness than to have to sit in jail when you never committed the crime. Peter Pringle, he was another famous one. He was a farmer from Ireland. And, in, and, he had, and he, he, they convicted him of murder. And in Ireland, they have the death penalty. And you know how Ireland uh, does their death penalty even to this day? It's death by hanging. They hang you in Ireland. And so he was scheduled to be hanged. Am I saying that right or hung? I think hanged. Hung, all right. He was scheduled for his hanging. <laughs> uh, and the president of Ireland said, you know what? I'd like to look once more into this case. And as they did, and they fine-toothed it and everything, and they looked, they actually found evidence that exonerated Peter Pringle, and he was not executed for his crime. How would you feel if something like that happened to you? To answer that question actually gives you a little bit of a glimpse as to what Jesus was going through the night of his arrest. In the back of his mind, knowing every single capital charge that they placed on Jesus was false and wrong. That he would have to endure 12 hours of false accusation where they didn't just slap you in the face, they crucified you as a result of it. He was brought before a jury, which was basically an angry mob. And he was brought before a jury along with a true criminal that had already been arrested for a murder. The true criminal's name was Barabbas. And he was arrested, not with Jesus, but at the same time as Jesus. And Jesus was an innocent man. And when the Roman governor had both men beside him, which one do you want me to release? The crowd chose for them to release Barabbas, who was an actual murderer. And they chose Jesus to go to death. Today, we would call it a wrongful conviction. And it was wrong in every sense of the word. But the fact of the matter is, many of us go through trials. People think things about us. People assume things about us. The world judges us in a certain way. 
and accuses us to be criminals. Unindicted, maybe, but judged nonetheless. And this morning, I'd like to look at how Jesus faced his wrongful conviction and how, how he faced it can teach us how to face those times when life is not only not fair, but it's actually like it's against you and you don't know why. So my first point is this. If you have a discussion sheet, you can go ahead and take that out and fill those in. Uh, I've seen, I've heard over and over, it really helps <laughs> when you start writing it down. It helps to commit to memory. So if you have one of those, uh, take it out. And my first point is this. Let God lead you in picking your battles. Let God lead you in picking your battles. Look at verse 7 here of Isaiah 53. It says, he, he is always talking about Jesus at this point. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You ever heard the phrase, pick your battles, pick your battles? If I had a dime for every time my mother or father said that to me, pick your battles, you know? How many of you, you're good at this? You're good, you're really good at picking your battles. All right, I'm glad nobody raised their hand because like me, I think, you know, we all can be very, very terrible at picking our battles. We tend to react. We tend to get way overly emotional, overly sensitive. We tend to do things without having all the facts, right? And so picking your battles is a very, very important thing. And God is saying, I want to help you with this. I want to lead you in this. There are some battles I want you to face, but I want you to face them in a certain manner. There are other battles I don't want you to face, and I want you to you know, kind of be led of the Spirit even in the battles that you take up. Because let's face it, most of us, we fight every battle that comes our way because inside there's this little fighter guy or this little fighter girl that wants to be vindicated and wants to defend ourselves. Or worse, some of us, we avoid every battle because we're scared of rejection or defeat. Neither one of those approaches is God's will. It's not God's will to take up every battle, and it's not God's will to avoid every battle. But when conflict comes in front of you, that is your signal. I need to get with God and see if God wants me to take up this battle and how and in the manner of which he wants it to be fought. Now, I hate to admit this, but I used to love watching people fight when I was younger. I mean, when I was, especially in high school, you know, uh, you'd be sitting down and all of a sudden, you know, you, you'd see a, 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 a you know, boyfriend and girlfriend go at it, you know, or honestly, it was really fun to watch two girls go at it because girls are so witty and they're so smart and they, their battle of words is so much more advanced than boys. And so I'd, I'd sit there like a front row seat just going, wow, good one, yeah. That was a good comeback. What a good bird. I'm writing that one down, you know. I mean, I used to love watching people fight. <laughs> and, and, and unfortunately, their pain and their, you know, their suffering was often a result of that fight. But here's the interesting thing. I always, you know, we, we, in our society, we kind of respect the one who wins the battle of wits. In fact, I'll tell you this. Battles with words are far more powerful than battles with fists. I've seen battles of fists. I've been in far too many of battles of fists, fists in my own life. 
And, and you know, that this thing's kind of true. I, I've been in fights and been, been fighting, and I can't say I, I necessarily have, like, long-term bitterness toward any of the people I ever punched or got punched by. You know, I, I don't know what it is about boys, but we can, like, punch each other and maybe be best friends five minutes later. I don't get it. But the battle of words, oh, my goodness. That can be a lifelong grudge. The courtroom is far more powerful than the boxing ring. And so when Isaiah is looking at this, what's about to happen to Jesus, he senses the courtroom as far more powerful than the actual physical beating that Jesus took. Now what's funny is no person of influence is known by what they don't say, right? You know, how many people do you know they are popular and, and they got elected because they said little or less? Present, president, <laughs> excluded. You know, I mean, you know, so, you know, <laughs> I thought of that just now, but anyway, you know what I'm saying? You know, most people, if you want to be a person of influence, it's what you say that gains the influence, right? Not, not, not your ability to sort of skirt or not say anything. And yet what Isaiah talks about is Jesus as a Savior, as the Son of God, who at his trial, he, his power at his trial is that he says nothing in his own defense. In Matthew chapter 26, 63, says, but Jesus kept silent. Matthew 27, 12, he did not answer. Mark 14, 61, he kept silent and did not answer. Mark 15, 5, and Jesus made no further comment. Luke 23, 9, but he answered him nothing. John 19, 9, but Jesus gave him no answer. All four gospels attest to the fact that Isaiah 53, 7 is exactly what happened. He was oppressed and afflicted, and he did not open his mouth. I don't know about you, but I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could do that unless I sensed something greater in God's plan to not have it done. And this is why it's so important to allow God to pick your battles. Because if Jesus didn't do that, he could have defended himself. He could have shouted. He could have gained support. He could have split the Pharisees. He could have split. I mean, he, he could have done all that. God the Father showed Jesus the Son a greater conflict that was going on. The one between humanity and sin, the one between Satan's hold on us and God's redemption. And so God said to Jesus, the manner in which this battle is going to be fought is when they accuse you, you stay silent. And they're going to crucify you. But you're going to rise you're going to have the ultimate victory. Not only do we allow God to pick our battles and guide us in picking our battles, but also the manner with which those battles are fought. When Jesus stood before the Jewish leaders who wanted him dead, he did not defend himself, nor did they really try to explain himself. He answered their questions to some degree, but he didn't defend himself. In fact, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, he was actually much, much different. Jesus' lack of defense kind of proved to him that Jesus was innocent. 
Now, once Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, he should have let him go. But he didn't. And we can speculate from here to eternity what Pilate's motives may have been. But in the end, Pontius Pilate could not wash his hands of guilt in the blood of Jesus. In fact, Pontius Pilate, he stands for all of us who know who Jesus really is and yet still reject him. That's exactly what Pilate did that day. So how did Peter do it? I'm sorry, how did Jesus do it? The apostle Peter was one of the few people who had, one of the few Christians, who had a front row seat to Jesus' trial. He was there. How do we know he's there? Because he's denying Jesus while Jesus is on trial and their eyes meet. So we know Peter was there. And Peter, years later, he writes a little letter and he recalls his eyewitness account of how Jesus conducted himself at his trial. And this is what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 and 23. He says, he committed no sin. Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He didn't sin and he didn't lie. When he was reviled, he didn't revile back. When he suffered, he did not threaten retaliation. And then Peter says this, but he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. If you hear nothing else today, may I hear that. Entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Don't think for a moment that God isn't involved in the affairs of earth, even if earth judges you wrong. Entrust yourself to God, and God's justice will ultimately prevail. Jesus endured the suffering because he had completely entrusted himself to God. Our problem is we trust God, we just often don't trust God that much. Well, yeah, I can trust my life to God, but I mean, earth is earth, you know? Earth is, I mean, earth works the way earth works, and God works the way God works, and we don't always see that bridge, and so we, we kind of trust God, but we trust God to a point, and Jesus never had a, a point of no trust with God. He completely knew that his life was in the palm of his hands. And that is what Peter and Jesus are trying to tell us both this morning. That when your life is in the palm of God's hands, you do not have to have some point out there where you can no longer trust God. Whether it's for finances, for health, for relationships, for guidance, for forgiveness, for peace. What they're saying is there's no point in which you can't trust God for that anymore, no matter how hard earth gets. And so when we are mistreated, how will we respond? Will we trust in God or have that fear of man? You find out who you are and what you really believe when somebody starts mistreating you. So when you are mistreated, here's a little saying that... that uh, I want to give to you, and this is something you can say whenever you're in that moment to repeat these four sentences, and they're this. It's not about me, and it's not about now. Go ahead and say it with me. It's not about me. It's not about now. It's all about God. It's all about eternity. 
not about me now. It's all about God and eternity. Number two, there is no battle you will ever face alone. There is no battle you will, you will ever face alone. Why do I make that point? Because you will feel alone. You will feel it. Our emotions and our psyche, we will feel alone when tough times come. And you'll want to tell everybody, and you'll want to tell all your friends, and then after you tell all your friends, you're going to want to tell them again, but this little thing inside you is going, you know what, I don't think my friends want to hear my problems anymore. Right? <laughs> and you'll begin to feel all alone. Look at what Isaiah says. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, he was punished. What does I say? Who protested the death of Christ? Who protested? Who spoke out against this wrongful conviction? Who came to Jesus' defense? We know Peter didn't. Who came? The answer is no one. Not any of his friends. You ever felt that way? If you have, know this. God felt that way once too. The people who were supposed to know him, the people who were supposed to love him, the people who were supposed to protect him and rejoice in him shouted, crucify him. And at some point in your life, you may feel this way. You may talk to somebody who feels this way. Rejection is hugely powerful and it is one of the top weapons of the devil against us. Some people are too sensitive to rejection. So they do everything they can to not get rejected. And some people are so hard-hearted and callous, they don't care about rejection, so they just hurt everybody. Neither one of those are, are balanced. God says to that, I will never reject you. I will never punish you. And I will never abandon you. I went to the cross for you so that nothing you do will ever count in the courts of heaven you are forgiven you are accepted you are loved and god will never let you face it alone you know people will fail you people will fail themselves it's funny when our needs go unmet when our needs go unmet watch how quickly we can rush to judgment and oppress others i am sure that people jesus was devastatingly hurt by the people who were supposed to love him. He was the promised Messiah. He was in a courtroom filled with people who had studied their whole life to identify the promised Messiah. Here he is, and they are not only rejecting him, they are killing him. I can imagine the rejection that Jesus was feeling. Even, and here, here's the interesting thing, Believe it or not, you can accomplish God's will for your life even when you are not fully put together. I know Jesus had a divine nature, but I can tell you this. When he was standing there with the people who were supposed to welcome him as the promised Messiah and they were planning to hand him over to be executed, I'm sure that hurt. He was human. He was probably devastated. And yet Jesus goes to show that you can accomplish God's will for your life even when you don't feel fully put together. 
even when you feel hurt, wounded, abandoned, alone, broke, confused. In that mindset, in that heart set, you can still accomplish God's will for your life because His will flowing through you is far more powerful than all the internal battles that go on in here. It is. Amen? It is. That's an amen moment. Even when we are struggling with depression, anger, loneliness, confusion, rejection, because God is with us, we can continue to face the battle because we do not face it alone. I want to give you, I know we have three points today, but just four quick things. I got this out of a Christian counseling book, so it'll save you a little money if you're struggling with this. If this doesn't cure it, then call Joy and she'll see you and that'll be awesome. So, um, but four thing, here's four quick reactions that you can take if you're suffering from rejection. The first one is face up to it and don't flee it. Face it, face it. You will be rejected in this life. You will. Somebody will, multiple somebody's will. All right? There, it is guaranteed not everybody on earth is going to like you. That's what the fall did to us. We just don't like everybody. So it's guaranteed. Rather than trying to flee it, rather than trying to live your life so that you never encounter it and never endure it, face it. It is going to happen. The second thing is very important. Forgive quickly. Forgive quickly. Don't delay the forget. Forgive quickly. What did Jesus do when he was on the cross? Before he died and before he was resurrected, he wanted to take care of one thing while he was still Jesus this side of the cross. And he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What is he effectively doing? Jesus brought God into the rejection. That's what forgiveness does. When you get rejected and you quickly decide you're going to forgive them, you have just brought God into that rejection. And he's now going to work in it. He's not going to work in you. He might even start working in that. Who knows? The third thing is fervently pray and release it. Not only did Jesus pray before the rejection in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed after the rejection while he was hanging on the cross. Why did Jesus pray before and after? We humans, we were actually not created to handle rejection. It is a psychological devastation to be rejected. When Adam and Eve left the garden, they felt the rejection of that paradise. That's why Jesus came and died on the cross, so that he could remove the rejection that we felt by our own failures. And then finally, number four, forge ahead and shake the dust off. Life is too short to get stuck on people who just refuse to accept you. There are 25% of the people in this world, you could do backflips all up and down Patton Way and they still will not be excited about you. You gotta accept it, move on. Jesus said, when you go to a village and you start preaching the gospel, if they reject you, shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next one because life's too short. John Gruden, who's now the head coach of the Oakland Raiders, the... Las Vegas Raiders once said this about his football players. The good ones play healthy, but the great ones play hurt. And even if you're hurt, believe it or not, God's will can still be accomplished. You can still do what he's called you to do. In fact, sometimes it's even stronger and purer 
when you minister to others in the midst of your own pain. Let's say it again. It's not about me. It's not about now. It's all about, it's all about eternity. Number three, final point. The battle belongs to the Lord. Verse nine, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This is a powerful prediction. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and the rich in his death. The wicked and the rich do not share a common fate often. So how could Jesus be assigned a grave with the wicked, but also with the rich? When Isaiah wrote these words, I think he even wondered how this prophecy was going to come true. He wrote it down because he knew that's what God was telling him to write down. But I bet you he was scratching his head going, how is he going to be executed with the wicked? The wicked are not given a nice grave. The wicked are not embalmed. They're not entombed. The wicked are burned and thrown away. How is he going to die with the wicked and yet be entombed with the rich? Isaiah scratching his head. How is this going to happen? Jesus was crucified between two thieves. To criminals, armed criminals. So he was crucified with the wicked. But he was buried in a tomb because a rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea offered Jesus his tomb. You'll see this in Matthew 27, verses 57 to 60. There's the rich. Even the burial of Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy even a little detail as to what are we going to do with the dead body once he's dead even that little detail finds itself in the predictions of Isaiah God knew 700 years ahead of time what would happen to Jesus and God knew 700 years ago what would happen to you Everything you're going through now in 14 or 13, somewhere in there, in the medieval era. I mean, God knew it long before that, but let's just use 700 as a number. God knew exactly what was going to happen to you then. God knew 700 years ago when you would lose your job suffer a heart attack, be rejected by your spouse, or tortured by the enemy. 700 years ago, he knew, and he's already been planning your comeback and your redemption. You may say, Tom, how in that verse do we find the comeback and the redemption? I'll tell you exactly how. That rich man's tomb that the dead body of Jesus was laid in would be the same tomb that that resurrected body exploded out of in new life, in new redemption, in ultimate victory. Jesus' oppressors were silenced. His torturers were defeated. 
and his enemies were humiliated. That's why it's so important to say the battle belongs to the Lord. It ain't over until God says it's over, and me, he may have an ultimate victory in mind, even if the temporary battles seem like he's led you into defeat. When it's God's battle, his purposes are accomplished, and when we are in his purposes, even in the midst of battle, we have peace. I don't want to say that Jesus died a peaceful death. I'm sure he died in horror and in agony. But when he said his final words, it is finished, I believe all the peace of the Holy Spirit flooded him in a way where he took that final exhale and it was all accomplished. What did he accomplish? He accomplished me and you the world who would follow him now have the chance, now have the option to take Jesus as their Lord and Savior and never have to worry about their sins or the evil and suffering of this world again. We may have to endure it, but we don't have to worry it. Amen? So this morning... Some of you may be wondering, man, how can the great ones play hurt? How can I continue to love, continue to keep having God grow in my life and in my example to others when I just feel so emotionally obliterated? The answer is very simple. Keep entrusting everything to God and you will see a victory. The Israelites stood across from Goliath for many, many days. And the day before David arrived, they probably all thought, we're going to be slaves, we're going to be slaughtered, this is going to end in a horrible defeat. And then in the course of one day, their whole future changed. For somebody showed up with enough faith to say, I'm going to take down this giant and God's going to do it through me. And sometimes that's what we need to say. I'm going to take down this giant and God's going to do it through me. Pray with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. To the glory of God the Father, I receive you. I make you my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your thoughts and with your guidance that you may pick my battles for the battle belongs to the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.